Hey everybody, we at Podgave Rock and Roll Do You want to make it clear that we don't mean any offense by our comments, critiques, or opinions. We're not music critics, just buddies that use talking about music as an excuse to hang out. Also, our language is intended for adult ears. Enjoy! Cause I'm in the shed house Wish I played in a rock and roll band Somebody give me a dollar bill So I can pass out So I watched this music doc on Donna Summer, who I didn't really know that much about, but did not realize like how big she was. Y'all know who Donna Summer is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw the film too. I liked it. First of all, her story is crazy because she was like a black woman from Boston who ended up singing pop in Germany and then met Giorgio Morador, I don't know how to say his name. And did some experimental stuff, and then the, you know, I love to love you, baby, was, and then all of she was like as big as the fucking Bee Gees in the '70s in the in the disco scene, and then came back with uh, she works hard for the money, which I do remember that song and how big it was. It was just a surprising like one of those people that exists in the music world that at a certain point you could not escape probably for a good ten years, but a Huge little star. bit before before my time so it's just not somebody that i think about when i think about pop stars from that era really they didn't get into it that much i felt like i i enjoyed she was a huge star but i felt like i was wanted them to get a bit more into like her later years because she was doing stuff but she wasn't singing i remember this may just be from growing up remembering she was like on a a couple of episodes of family matters like she'd kind of just pop up in random places not for music. Mm. It was like Donner Summer. I was like, okay. But that's, anyways, I like the yeah. film. And a lot of good music. Yeah, it's like remembering Ray Charles for the Pepsi commercials. You know? <laughs> right. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch that one, but I did finally finish the Wham doc. We don't need to cover that again. But uh, I was amazed <laughs> that um, the whole Muscle Shoals thing that he went down to record, um, yeah. what was it? Uh, What's, careless whisper. Yeah, careless whisper. And I was like, oh, here we go. And then it was like, yeah, it didn't work out. It's the first time and I've it, ever heard it, that. <laughs> and he was like confident enough to be like, yeah, I'm not going to use this one. I want to mix it a different way. But it was great. It was it was a very good story. I had no idea how big they were or like just how cool their story was. It was cool. Yeah, I feel like the music docs have become like the maybe not as popular as true crime docs because those are just like you can people get murdered all the time there's not like endless pop stars there's that endless you can make murder documentaries. but not endless. there's endless murder <laughs> not endless pop stars yeah there's a formula uh, to those uh music docs now like it's just so so not i wouldn't i won't say easy but there's a formula where you can follow oh yeah and I would say just kind of what Tal was saying the Donna Summer one did not really follow that formula and I think it suffered a little bit because of that. I think they tried something a little different. Maybe it was because it was done by family hmm. that there was just something missing. And maybe that's just because she was so private and they were trying to like kind of show her private life. It was just a very, I don't know. I thought it was a little disjointed how it. Do you miss any music docs, Josh? You just eat those fuckers up. <laughs> if I see one. I love them. I, I love do too. Them. I, I, have you seen the Phil Spector one? Yeah. Have you seen yeah. Spector, Josh? Yeah. On great. Showtime, I think it was on. I just watched it. It's nuts. Yeah, it was like three parts, right? 
I think it may have been five parts. I don't know. It was pretty long, but it was, uh, I mean, he's someone I've always been very fascinated by, but that, that's a crazy one. Mm-hmm. Which you one? Have the time to watch it. About Phil Spector. I think it's just called Spector. Oh, uh, you don't it's, get Showtime. Yeah. I don't get Showtime, so uh, if it's on Showtime, I have not uh, seen okay. it. Okay. You got some untapped. I looked up Paramount Plus, there. and I think that's, we had Showtime through Paramount. There's too much. I can't keep track. Well, Showtime is anyway. now Paramount, too, which is weird. <laughs> Showtime is Paramount? Okay. See, now we're getting into the the wormhole. We're getting into the the nuance of the streaming services, which is uh, not something we want to fall down the rabbit hole of. Uh, But going back to uh, Ray Charles and Donna Summer and kind of remembering them in a weird way, a little bit of of tonight just want to touch on, do do you guys have, you know, remembering – Rock people, obviously, later, like, I, you know, I said I watched a little Richard Doc a while back, and really, I, when I was growing up, I just remember him from commercials as well, and he had this giant head, it seemed like. But if you think about, like, rock stars in their early careers, which is a little something we're going to talk about a little bit later with the song song this week, but can you think about any rock stars from their early careers that you remember that eventually had a bit big-time career, and you're like, man, that's weird where that person came from. Um, the only one I can really think of is, um, and I think I've touched on it before, but I know when I saw Lauren Hill in Sister Act, I was like, damn, that girl can sing. She's going to be big. <laughs> Which was weird. Were the Fugees no. like a popular at that point? No, no she, was, really? she was unknown to some extent. Interesting. I, I wasn't alive for this, but whenever when I read that Neil Young and... Um, was it Rick James were in yeah. like a Mo- Motown pop band was <laughs> both of their like first bands. It's just one of the weirder stories yeah. of two kind of eventual rock and roll or funk rock and roll, whatever legends uh, being in a band yeah, together. And- you wouldn't guess those two. That's when I was thinking of too. I thought of that too. Rick James and Neil Young in a band together when it came to the or- origin stories, you know? Yeah, it's, I was going to yeah. say it's odd, too, that how Hendrix had to go to England to become famous. He went over there, started rocking, and came back, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, and he's interesting as well because he was also in, like, he was in Ray Charles' band at one point. He was in Little Richard's band at one point. You know, like, I mean, he, he yeah. was playing in bands with some of the greats and, uh, before he went over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and then one other one that I heard a long time ago that I, I don't know the name of the band or anything, but I'm pretty sure if you're listening and I'm wrong, that Billy Joel like started out in like a heavy metal duo. I think like his first band was like that. a metal huh. duo in New Jersey or Long Island or wherever he's from. I want, the, I want those demos, those duo <laughs> demos. And then he, <laughs> any visual <laughs> evidence of him with like big metal Glam rock hair would be would be cool. You you go from like that to like she's only a woman to me. You know? <laughs> yeah. The one you I know. just thought of that is a bit more contemporary is Tupac starting out with with um, uh, Digital Underground. Huh? Really? Yeah. That's a very yeah, yeah. good one. That's he started out as you know if you remember the Humpty Dance. You remember the Humpty yeah, Dance? Yeah. yeah. Really? So he, he was a part yeah. of that. I'm not sure he was with the group yet during Humpty Dance, but around that time he became a member of the group. <laughs> he was and trying was to ba- ride that know, Humpty Dance train. Movie. Do you remember this movie from the 90s? I think it's called Nothing But Trouble with Dan Aykroyd and uh, John Candy, maybe. Anyways, I just remember because Digital Underground's in it and Tupac is in this horrible 90s movie with... 
digital <laughs> underground before he's Tupac. And if you watch, there's the only redeeming thing about the whole movie is you watch it like, whoa, that's Tupac right there. That's Tupac. In this random oh, horrible movie. Well, yeah. uh, for our listeners, um, if, if, if they don't know now, they know, uh, even though now it's Notorious B.I.G., uh, that's Tal Pinchevsky talking there, and he is uh, in his last week, as a, our last episode as a guest on this podcast. So, Tal, we like to ask our guests a specific question on their final week, uh, which is somewhat similar to the ones we ask in their uh, first week. But do you have a history of playing music? like a musical instrument. Did you learn one at any point in your life? Yeah, yeah. I was in I was in bands all through middle school, high school, less in college, and then by the time I was done school, I played with a few people in New York, but never really dedicated much time to it after that. But I still noodle around. I've always, I have a demo I've recorded myself where uh-huh. I played uh I played uh, all the instruments and wrote all the songs. That was more just a fun little personal project back in the day that I did. So, but yeah, I played... You were a dilettante. Oh yeah, absolute dilettante. Mainly a guitar player or we, what? We, guitar, bass, drums. Who's your Who's uh, your dude? Like, who's your top three guitar rock gods? Oh, wow. Sorry, I just... Jimmy Page was a huge one. I started, play, I started playing when I was around 12, and I had just discovered Zeppelin. I remember they had a, bo- yeah. a huge box set that mm-hmm. came out at that time. And nice. I got instantly hooked with Pay, like Jimmy Page for sure. Kind of at a different end of the spectrum. At one point, I got like I went through a fish stage. Nice. And Trey Anastasio, in terms of just sheer musicianship, he's like a savant. He's legit. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. This pod is no stranger to fish. I'll yeah, tell you I'm much. assuming he's come up on this podcast before. But his <laughs> abil- his ability is like absolute neck. Regardless of how you think about their songs or his, you know, yeah. things like that, you know, he's a next level player. It's super for fun sure. to learn We're, his stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the different scales and progressions he, he plays for absolutely. And just fun to watch, too. But, uh, and then if we're going with the third, I don't know. I love Kirk Hammett. I love, like, that's his sound, Metallica. He's, I find he's very underrated as a soloist in rock history. And, uh, and there's a great scene from Some Kind of Monster, if you remember uh, the documentary. If we bring it back oh, yeah. to music. There's a scene where they're having a meeting where they're discussing getting rid of guitar solos in the next album. <laughs> and Kirk is just not having it. It's, it's a great scene. It's hilarious. It's I, hilarious. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, it yeah. was like, what the fuck? Um, okay, so, so one question on top of that. What is your favorite song to play or was your favorite song to play when you were playing more? What did the one we're one? talking about today is one of them for sure because you can just... <laughs> kick back it's it's oh man just it's keep it easy going. and obviously very repetitive and catchy and you can just like lean back in your chair and just play it to yourself all right well, yeah. well on yeah. that note let's get to it you're listening to a pod gave rock and roll to you and uh, this week we're talking about odd starts for rock and roll and 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 guitars because this week we're talking about hunger strike by temple of the dog from their 1990 album Temple of the Dog, written by Chris Cornell and produced by Rick Parashar and Temple of the Dog and released on A&M. I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of decadence 
this is, a, I mean, this is right in my wheelhouse here. This is my era musically coming up. It's, I think, an absolutely timeless, incredible song with an incredible story behind it, featuring basically like two of the great rock bands in history before they were those bands. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just a fascinating backstory behind it. It's something for me personally, I incorporated it into my regular life. I'll hum it to myself in uh, just random situations and alter the lyrics to fit that situation. If you know. <laughs> so if, if I'm doing laundry, I will sing, I'm doing laundry. You know? oh, that's if, if, I'm, if, it's, if it's time to eat, I'm fucking hungry. You know? It's just, it's tattooed on my brain. And again, the story behind the song is just so incredibly fascinating and sad and and just it's like it's it's like a, the song for me is like its own like Shakespearean tragedy on top of being a great song a timeless great song with fantastic next level vocals um, lyrically I think is fantastic it ticks every box for me um, well, yeah, it's it's a great song. I mean, I'm so kind of surprised we haven't done this already because it's just so unique <laughs> and cool. Uh, I was surprised. I I was surprised when Josh said you hadn't yeah, done it. Yeah, and it's but, the opportunity yeah. to just get like a couple different bands. There's a lot a lot to talk about, but I do remember uh, back in high school, um, my stepdad was all about this tune, which was always cool. My stepdad, him coming up to me and being like, dude, Temple the Dog, like really bought him some street cred. And then I was like, actually, I think he gave me my street cred. I wasn't giving him street cred because like he's the reason I'm into such good music for sure. Probably was it 92 this came out? Well, it came out in 90, but then they yeah, well, re-released re when it. When the video came yeah. out, yeah. So I was a freshman in high school. It was right. It was, I mean, right there when you're young and just like, it just hit me. It was on MTV constantly. The amazing fusion of these two bands and singers. Um, the, the lyrics uh, and just the, the tone of the song are so specific and kind of like, it's one emotion, but the melody and the, the, the song itself is so good that it transcends just like you don't have to like I don't think necessarily about hungry people I just think about a great song when I'm listening to it you know what I mean Neil Marsh <laughs> fuck the poor there you go uh, <laughs> we got your campaign slogan I, I, I remember this from childhood I'm a little younger uh, so you know I was probably like 9 or 10 when this video was on and it's a song that I've always liked a lot and I really enjoyed listening to it um, for this episode, but I mean, there's one thing about this song that, like, I whenever I think about it, I think of Eddie Vedder just standing in like really tall grass or wheat. <laughs> I don't know if it's wheat, and just intensely singing and like looking off into the distance <laughs> about going hungry, and it's very awkward. Uh... And I've always found it very funny, and and because of that, and the insane purple thing that I think Jeff Ament is wearing. Um, it's just, it's, it, it's always struck me as like these like grunge dudes with the long hair, just singing earnestly, like looking at a river mm -hmm. through like tall grass. It's like the loner, like moody response to Farm Aid or, or, you know, that song that they all sang uh, in the eighties um, that was on the Wham Doc speaking of, but more seriously like like you said the riff is super catchy the build works how they you know bring in you know they kind of build the 
the mm-hmm. the energy as as the song goes on. The interludes are a really nice breakdown from, you know, we talked about Band of Horses last week. That's kind of it's similar structure-wise where you have this one kind of looping riff and then occasionally there's this musical breakdown. That's not really that complicated, but, you know, provides in this song's case at least some some like head major headbanging vibes. But yeah, like uh, Tal, I think you said the lyric, though it's short, it, it's super powerful in its imagery. I, I think that does always stick out when you listen to the song. But let's let's be honest, the interplay vocally is what carries the song past like a, just a decent song from this era to something that's very memorable. Yeah, and I just wanted to bring up one thing. You were uh, talking about the breakdown. I do. I, I think it's necessary for sure. But I do think that that part dates this song just that that little rock breakdown is so Absolutely. grungy so crunchy and grungy <laughs> and uh like i and i don't hate it whatsoever but i do think they may have missed a small opportunity to do something a little more creative there but you know i, I think for what it is it's it's, it's great for this Here's my thought on that, and I did not realize how short the lyric was to this song. I didn't realize that they just match, the the verses just mirror each other. Mm -hmm. Cornell sings it, then Vetter sings it. Mm -hmm. Same exact lines, Mm -hmm. and then they just go, I'm going hungry hungry until it ends. And so they're just like, the, the, the vocal itself just seems like an incomplete poem that he wrote. And then one of the guys probably had a riff, and he was like, oh, this will work with that. And they were like, well, what do we, I don't really have anything else to add to this. Mm-hmm. you know. And then they're like, well, we got to break it up somehow. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is all about the vibe. Just the drone quality of it. I mean, and like you were talking about, Josh, the build. Like, I don't, I don't even really think the guitar ever changes. It's just the bass building underneath. It's kind of like the guitar just keeps droning on. Like, uh, I absolutely love that kind of stuff when you can really kind of just find one cool riff to dig into and let the rest of the band just kind of do the musical movement movements around you. Yeah. They ride that riff, man. They, they ride it hard. I mean, they don't, they don't deviate (laughs) from it very much. Yeah. Like they, like, like you said, it's, it's not, you know, they're, they're not really like uh, flexing a lot of artistic muscle. Obviously they have, they're in the pocket, you know, and, Contextually, they're all going through something very intense at that time when they write the song. Uh, and they're just like leaning into it, you know, with a lot of intensity. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think the music is probably the least important part of the song. Honestly, I mean, it's 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 about the lyric and the vocals are the most important thing to the song. Tal, you can kind of expand on this, but obviously it's Eddie Vedder's first track that he sang it's on his that. first basically his first recorded music yeah that's my yeah. understanding is this is like his first recorded track with yeah. anyone and it comes on the heels of uh of andy wood who is one of chris cornell's best friends lead singer of mother love bone with jeff ament and stone gossard who later formed pearl jam their lead singer dies of a drug overdose He's in a coma, I think, for like three or four days. Like it's very drawn out, very painful, yeah. mm-hmm. very tragic. He's like 23 years old or something. I, I don't remember the exact age. 
And the, 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 these guys come together, basically Andy Wood's old band and his, one of his best friends come together to kind of pay tribute to him. And they write this song, and among other songs, you know, but this is the one that obviously I think a lot of people associate with Temple of the Dog. They put out an album through A&M, as you mentioned, yeah. and it doesn't really go anywhere. They don't make the video right away. And then like a year later, it comes out before Bad Motor Finger from Sound Garden comes out, and it comes out mm -hmm. before 10 yep. by Pearl Jam comes out. So like a year after the album's out, A&M realizes we have like an album featuring two of the biggest bands in the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. We might want to do something with this. And that's when they produced the video and re-released the album. Yeah. And, uh, and it just goes from there. And that's, you know, they Temple of the Dog never uh, put out another album. They played the song, you know, Vetter and Cornell played the song together live, either with Pearl Jam or Soundgarden. I think mo only with Pearl Jam, actually. A few times over the years, and they never go on tour until 25 years later, 2016. Hmm. Yeah. They play eight shows at the end of 2016. First time Temple of the Dogs ever gone on tour. And Andy Woods, this was not, like, I looked this up. It's She was not quoted in any, like, I would say a reputable news outlets, but there was a lot of reporting about a blog post or something on her website written by Andy Wood's old girlfriend, basically expressing her, you know, her dissatisfaction with the fact that they were going on tour with this. And then made hmm. there, she had led, she kind of hinted there had been a falling out with Chris Cornell at some point, at least with wow. her. And uh, they play the eight gigs. And uh, six months later, Chris Cornell takes his own life. I mean... Oh, wow. It was that close to it? I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and it's just... And for, from a band that started with his best friend dying of a drug overdose, you know, yeah. and then 25 yeah. years later, all good, this... That's not a good bookend to the uh, lifespan no, of Temple of the Dog. It's tragic. Yeah. It's a, like I said before, I mean, it's a tragic story, but it's... A good, it's a good story at least, for a great yeah. song, and sad, sad in the end, obviously. Well, I can't beat on the powerless when my cup's already We should say, I mean, you mentioned a lot of this, but Jeff Immense on bass, Stone mm -hmm. Gossard's on guitars, Mike McCready's on guitars, Vetter's co-lead vocals, all of those were original Pearl Jam guys, and then you had Cornell and Matt Cameron playing drums, who were Soundgarden, and now Matt Cameron is the drummer for, for Pearl Jam as well. So so that that's kind of how that breakdown works. But I, I did read that, like, basically, Eddie Vedder said it was like the fourth or fifth day that he had come up to Seattle. Temple of the Dog was doing a rehearsal, like, before Pearl Jam, or Mother Lobone, I think they were still called Mother Lobone at the time, and then he heard that Cornell was like trying to do the low part and he just stood at, like went up to the mic and sang it and Cornell was like yeah and then the next time he was in Seattle they did the vocals together and he was like it's always been a special song to me because he allowed me to like be on the song and and Pearl Jam still performs it like he'll perform it and, and do and do it you know with and without yeah or, obviously without him at this point yeah i read that story and it was just cool i mean eddie uh loves this song i mean he sees it as one of his big breaks and like he even said he was surprised he had the balls to just kind of like sneak up to yeah. the microphone like <laughs> start singing along such like a lightning bolt moment like whoa okay here we go 
and we're off and running. And yeah, and I think the, the like the most climactic part of the song is oddly enough, and what I take when I leave this song every time is when Eddie in the end goes, "Oh, I don't mind." I, that's like this the part of this song that sticks with me when I leave. Like that's like you were talking about humming, like I'm doing laundry, which is which is great. <laughs> but like I'll walk away from this song and then just later I'll be like, huh, I don't mind. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, that part is great, but I, I can't get past the coming in from the last break, the Yeah the Cornell. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's, yeah. That one part, um, I read this amazing quote uh, from David Frick of Rolling Stone said, Cornell and Vetter turn its four minutes into a a veritable opera of rock guilt. Cornell turns on Robert Plant's down napalm, full blast, (laughs) but it's Vetter's scorched introspection that brings the the conscience of the song into a full boil. It's a perfect way to sum that up, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Just, don't really have to say much, the, but much else. Robert Plant style napalm. <laughs> From that era of music, Neil said, you, you, he said, light in a bottle. They're probably the two best singers to come out of that style of music at that and time. And they're so unique uh, in their own right. Yeah. It was, there, was no, there was no crossover. They were both kind of doing their own thing. Pretty much, yeah. And, and real quick, we should mention that uh, it's produced by Rick Parashar, who's making his third appearance on Pod Give Rock and Roll to you, uh, the first being Black, Pearl Jam, and Wood, Alice in Chains. Just to, to throw that in, we kind of already talked about the music and stuff like that. That's cool. I didn't know he produced those other those other records. That's cool. He was big in that Seattle sound at the time. Work, you know, worked with other bands. Ended up working, honestly, I think he worked with Brandy Carlisle was one of his last people that he worked with, which is a little different. But... You know, just in terms of production, I mean, this just sounds pretty like what you would expect from that time, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's a pretty sim- simple orchestration of guitars, bass, drum, yeah, yeah, singers. They, they do the thing they're supposed to do, which is get out of the way of the vocals and ride that riff. Tao, what are your thoughts on the tone of the guitar and Pearl Jam, kind of this tone in general? It's so specific, and I think it's it works very well here, but there's something that always, like, I always want a little more out of it. Just the tone, not the playing. Just I feel like I want yeah. to give, give him a, a better amp or something. <laughs> I, I feel like that's the sound of that era, though. I know. I feel, it, I, I, yeah. it is. It totally is. I feel is, like that's it, a lot of these bands sound like that. It's very... Very clean, very like mm-hmm. lean. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's not not a lot of overproduction. Like I yeah. remember thinking, so like on Nevermind, Kurt Cobain's vocals are like they um, loop them over each other, like harmonize different vocals on different tracks. Mm-hmm. But that's as like overproduced as that sound would get back then. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and usually, yeah. I, it it sounds like they're playing it live. You know, like yeah. that's. Yeah, just for about sure. every band of that era. Eventually, Soundgarden gets a little more produced, but uh, for the most part, in th- that time, a lot of these bands, they just sound like they're playing it live, and and that's mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's why it's interesting that this, you know, I don't know much about the producer, but that he's on these other well-known records you mentioned. They sound the same way. Yeah. It's the same style. It's it's very basic. This song is not really based on that, but from the era, to me, what always stands out, it's like it's very riff based. And the solos, like, really don't stand out from this era at all. 
for these type of bands. Like they they, they weren't no, really but, about. But both these bands have a lot of solos. That's the interesting yes. thing. Yes. Yeah, but I can't, have a I can't ton name of solos. one Pearl Jam solo that I'm like, ooh, that's yeah. Hot they, they just don't stick out. Um, you can right. which it's yes, a, and that's part of it too. I, uh, like I wanted one in this song after. The second breakdown, there's that little like eight bars where I'm like, fucking go. <laughs> do it, do it. Like it's coming, it's coming, I can feel it. Let's talk about the lyric for just a minute. I mean, we hit on it earlier, but like, I do think the imagery in this song is top. The lyric is very short, and but the imagery is is very top notch. I can't feed on the powerless when my cup's already overfilled is a masterful line. Love that fucking line, and and how he wraps it up. It it, it really feels like he just wrote this one thing, and was just like, this is this is good, mm-hmm. and but then just left it at that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read the lyrics, but it, it does say, but it's on the table, and then blood is on the table, right? Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I also thought, I, I read, this could be, I always thought he said decadence. Like, Me too. I still do. The lives I still of think decadence. That. But, no, it says, it's going to sound exact, decadence, like D-A-N-C-E is what I always thought. And if you look up the lyric, it's decadence, like people that are decadent right huh wait yeah it, yeah it doesn't really matter the they both word. kind of mean the same thing <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. sounds exactly the same it's funny and it sounds exactly the same so who the fuck knows i don't know if he's ever um but and also with the lyric is he going hungry or, or like are they trying to banish hunger or are they going on a hunger strike like what it yeah. seems like they're, me, like they're using a Robin Hood method to end hunger, not actually go on a hunger strike, right? It's confusing, that's for sure. I don't know what's going I mean, for on. For me, I've always, in, I always interpret, I never looked it up, but like if, if, if Chris Cornell ever commented publicly on what the lyrics mean, but I always like, thought of it as a protest song. Like, yeah. uh, I don't mind stealing bread from the mountain, you know, I don't mind stealing from the decadence. But I won't feed on the powerless when my cup's already overfilled. And then, yeah, I'm going, I guess like a hunger strike, I'm going hungry. As far as the blood on the table and all that, I, I think they, he, my guess is he had some great lyrics to start and then kind of just had to finish it with something, basically. <laughs> he, he, got some, he got some rock and roll lyrics in there in the, at, at the end. Uh, right. With the, the, fire, the, fi- the blood's on the table, the fire's cooking, uh, the slaves are, are working. Let's let's move to the video that I mentioned and Neil, I think you mentioned, but uh, I do remember this being on MTV all the time mm-hmm. when at a certain age and just finding it hilarious. I thought this video was hilarious <laughs> and I still do. I, ma- I made my girlfriend watch it earlier and she was just like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I did not watch it. I, did, I wanted to, um, but I remember loving it back in the day. I think I probably thought it was ridiculous, but uh, at that age, you're just like, hell yeah. Great. You're like, yeah. yeah, and you're right. Eddie's just like he's just such a ball of like <laughs> angst and like uh, and the, just the, the. Let's put Eddie in the wheat that's like taller than him to make it look like he's sitting down, but he's really just standing up because he's shorter. I, I don't know. It's just such a weird decision to make. It is an interesting decision, and there is a lighthouse in it, which might make it the most Seattle music video that's ever been made. <laughs> 
I wrote down, I was like, they're looking at a river or maybe a sound. I don't know. <laughs> I think A&M was like, we better make a video because we have a song with members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam together. So just get these guys somewhere near where they live and shoot something and yeah, we'll yeah. pay for it. Yep. Well, I do have another question based on that. Watching the video, it made me think. I was like, wait a second. So, you're like, grunge was supposed to be everything hair metal was not. But then when you watch, you're just like, they lost the spandex and they lost the hairspray. But they didn't cut their hair. Like, they didn't cut their hair. It just went from, like, way up here to, like, mm -hmm. way down here. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's their rebellion. It's like, no more hairspray. Yeah, it's funny. Those, we're, those we're, days we're, are we're gone. keeping the locks. It, it, it might be because I can't grow my hair that long that I'm just like jaded at looking at it. But the hair it, it was yeah, the hair was a calling card. The hair for me was definitely a calling card. Like I remember, like because like Lane Staley cut his hair at one point. Yes, and that was big, and it like changed the entire image of the band for for me as a kid. You know, mm -hmm. consuming every band of this era. It's like whoa, he's cut his hair, and he does. He's not like waving his hair around and every other band was still doing that they still had a lot of that like 80s metal hair metal aesthetic but it was, yeah, it was much angrier fun. yeah they just ran out of yeah. hairspray well it was almost like these guys couldn't like like it's not like they had dance moves like a usual like front man would have so it's like the hair we, we need the hair to like we need to do something when like they're just breaking down yep. and I'm just gonna, whipping it around is what hair, we're gonna do climb on the rafters <laughs> song did reach number four on the rock charts it didn't really mention that it broke into the top 100 but what year was um, that 92 is that 92 91 92 when it 92, when it, 92 okay. is when they kind of went because they did it after i guess the 10 and what was it called bad motor something bad motor um, finger yeah bad motor finger yeah they, those were both released in 91 so original release 90 the bands came out in 91, they re-released in 92. It got up to number four. Hope, I assume that some of these proceeds go to some kind of hunger thing. I'm just gonna assume that. I don't know I don't know that for a fact, but I'm gonna just put it on Pearl Jam, the guys in Pearl Jam and Soundgarden to be uh, uh, generous. Yeah, well, it's funny too, just the um, that it was basically Cornell's song, but it's so Eddie, his whole vibe. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't. Well, okay, well, let me just, add, before we move on to the fun parts, who wins? I, it, they just mirror each other, and then they're kind of battling. Like, who wins? Does anybody win? Um, no. I think you may have just answered for you. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I think if I had to pick, I think Cornell wins just because he wrote it. He really brings, like, the napalm like we talked about. But Eddie's just so cool in it. Like, Chris Cornell's showing off a little more, and Eddie's just, like, the badass just crushing it in the background, you know? I think Eddie, Eddie wins for me. I, I it just, like... I don't know, Cornell's... It's just that, yeah. Sounds ama that, yeah. amazing. But it's just like, with the content, I, I think Eddie probably grounds it a little more and makes it a little more... Mm -hmm. You take it a little more serious, basically, because of him, I guess. Tal, what about you? You, you tie yeah, right Yeah, that's here. a tough one. I'll probably take Cornell just because it is his song, and he wails so ridiculously hard. Yeah. You know, that's towards the, just, especially that, that, that yeah. last, you know... And did you... The last part of the song, but I mean, it's Eddie owns it too. It's uh, sometimes I, I think of it as a Pearl Jam song. Sometimes I think of it as a Soundgarden song. You know what I mean? So did you guys notice? Could go either way. 
Do you guys notice um, during, while Eddie's singing, Cornell's harmonizing with him in the background, just ever so slightly. You can barely yeah. hear it, but it like, it fills, it makes Eddie sound so much bigger, but like, you can't really hear it unless you really listen, which it's a nice. Yeah, that may have been an unfair question. Like, nobody needs to win. They both kill it. <laughs> and, that, and that's all that matters. So, so. So why don't, why, don't we, why don't we use that to, to move into the vibe time? And, and Tal, we'll let you bring us in one last time in uh, three, two, one. It's like, let's do it. I'm going to do it. I got this. We got this. Let's do it. I'm just, you know, it's the ultimate Wait. psych up song. What are you going to do? Are you going to stop eating? Or are you going to steal food no, and give like, to the poor? For me, if we're talking strict, strictly vibe, strict vibe, it's like the ultimate buildup. It's the ultimate, that, that guitar lick just going over and over and over. And like, obviously, lyrically, it's a different vibe. But just for me, pure, like, <laughs> musical vibe, mm-hmm. it's just like building and building into, and then it builds, it ultimately builds up to da-da-da-da, which is not exactly what you're picturing, maybe, but, but it's still Some great. may but call it anticlimactic, Neil yeah. being uh, specific specifically doing that here but uh Tal, it's a Tal. it's a classic journey over destination experience oh, there you go there yeah, you go yeah. well put mm-hmm. um so You're when saying. specifically do you want to hear the song yes yeah, so when specific just when i need to be when i need to self-motivate Laundry. and i need to you know <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm, i i don't listen to tony <laughs> robbins tapes anymore so i need to put on the temple of the dog <laughs> Okay, I like it. And uh, like just, it. yeah, just get amped. Yeah, I had it a little bit different. I, I, I would say, uh, <laughs> you know, n- not, to, not to talk about how great of a person that I am, just a human being-wise, but during the quarantine, I would go to the L.A. Zoo and help distribute food, which you'd pack up. And I was like, listening to this, I was like, this would be the perfect song to just put in earplugs because I never wanted to talk to anybody while I was doing that and just have this song, like, on repeat. Be like, fuck yeah, I'm going hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fucking sandwich. Uh, <laughs> Neil, well, I think what about what about it'd be you? A perfect song on a road trip if you're like your road trip partner like won't stop for food or it's been a long time. You just kind of like <laughs> casually put a it comedic on. take yes, on it. Yes, comedic. But vibe. no, on a serious note, I think um, <laughs> it's it, perfect around a campfire from a boombox. 90s style for a CD, a CD boombox. Is there a river <laughs> in view? There's a creek. <laughs> and or lighthouse. <laughs> there can and, be. And do one of you have to go stand off in the weeds? There's got to be a lighthouse nearby. No mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of a campfire and sitting around one, uh, why don't we slide under the influence, um, which, Neil, we'll let you get us going on this. What, what, do, you, what do you got for influences well, this week? from the past, just like 70s music, how the band and Dylan and Jerry and Clapton were all intermingling in different bands and playing with each other. Sure. But in a meaningful way, not just like, hey, Clapton's here to play a solo. Like, they, they were actually collaborating on albums. Um, so that kind of stuff. And then moving forward, I mean, just throughout the 90s, just... Uh, alone Pearl Jam and Soundgarden's uh, sound kind of uh, fueled the 90s to some extent but you know specifically I can hear like the Foo Fighters in here Bush uh, Lightning Crashes even Possum Kingdom that song we did well well, live call out I like it (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tal Tal, what about you what do you what do you hear in this yeah it's well that's what's so interesting about the song not to like 
go off on other things necessarily, but it's just like so many people heard this song, like this sounds just like Pearl Jam or this sounds just like Soundgarden, not realizing this, this song predates those bands in a certain, it's just like, again, I think I said this about the, the Cure track we did. It's like so of its era that it, it, it just sounds like that time for me. Cause it's, it's the arguably the definitive song of an era that is so iconic in music. It doesn't sound like a lot of things predating it for me, you know. I, I, agree, I agree completely. I, I couldn't really think of, like, you know, I mean, Neil you pulled the, like, the companionship of rock and roll from the 70s. Where this comes from, it's not really that bluesy, Mm-mm. you know? So, like, I, I, don't, I don't hear that. I mean, maybe some of the harder stuff from the 70s. And, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say, even though Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, I mean, they both evolved their sounds from this. I mean, this is kind of the roots of that. But, like, also Neil Young. Yeah, I was going to say Neil Young. Yeah, that's the one I was going to say. And at that, sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to mention, at the time before this all came together, Neil Young was doing, I forget the name of the album, but he was doing, like, a very kind of hard rock thing at that time, musically, in the early 90s. Was that the Rockin' in the Free World? Yeah, 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 exactly. But then, unfortunately, you did. I mean, like, there's a direct line from this to Creed and to Nickelback. Yeah. So and that's the unfortunate box. side of it. And Candlebox <laughs> and, you know, yeah, stuff like that. So, But speaking of other musicians, why don't we slide under the covers for a little bit and talk about the covers of this song. I'll get us started here. I listened to a few. I'm going to just say, like, two that I listened to. One was called Rev Theory. And one was Daughtry with LeJean Witherspoon. And I expected to hate both of them, um, but both sounded pretty good, which makes me think, which, Tao, we have a thing that's like, is it a better song or is it a better performance? Which, honestly, I think this song, it applies to both. Because I listened to a few covers, and they, none of them were terrible because it's a good song. And, right, right. You know, it's also a very good performance, so it kind of checks both boxes did did you tell did you hear any covers i will say if you're going to cover i haven't heard those ones you mentioned if you're going to cover this song you better bring it so yeah. i'll have to listen to those and i, and I yeah. daughtry i'm obviously familiar with he the, he can sing i mean i'll give him that this is right in his wheel hall he sounds yeah, oh yeah yeah no question no Good. question he probably grew up listening to this song but the, the one i was thinking of it's actually not a cover so much it's a youtube video of cornell's performing this with Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park hmm. with Cornell singing the Eddie parts huh. and Benning and Chester singing the higher Cornell parts Interesting. and it's excellent it adds to the the aura or the legend or the tragedy of the song because both those guys are now dead hmm. I mean it's just yeah, it's, it's hard not to think about I don't not to you know yeah, not to cursed. go straight to that but because it, it's such an incredible performance but just, it's hard not to think about. It's hard not to think about that. Watching it, these two guys oh, singing for sure. it together. You know, that's wild. Mania, what about you? Did you hear anything? I sure did. Yeah, and you, like, I didn't even want to. Almost, I was like, why would I ever want to hear anyone else sing this song? Because, like, <laughs> Tal, like you said, you got to bring it because it's so specific. It's like oh, yeah. so like powerful message, and um, you know, you got two different people singing. Like, how are you even going to pull it off? First of all. So I listened to a few, and basically I put them all on the wall of shame. Josh, you mentioned one of them. Like, it just, I was... Which one, Rev Theory? Yeah, oh, man. 
There was a couple. <laughs> it was definitely. I mean, it wasn't as good as the Daughtry oh, one, but one it, it kind of like, just. They're like at Guitar Centers, or they're like, "Hey, man, we're gonna do this, and we're doing a cover, and like, there's a, it, like you hear two people go." <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, it was just. It, it made just, me sad, but I did hear one amazing <laughs> cover. I went on my my normal YouTube deep dive, and I found um, yeah the head and the heart doing it on Austin City oh. Limits. Ooh, it interesting. was fuck. It's hot sauce. It's so good. Um, they do the not they do not do the change. I think that was a classy move. <laughs> They're just like, nah, that doesn't need that. So it's just um, and two guys singing it. Um, it's really good, and the the way they do their music, like a lot of um, a lot of background vocals, a lot of haunting, like. Yeah. All mm-hmm. the Eddie stuff is like three different people kind of singing those parts. Um, I highly recommend acoustic. It. No, just just full band, no? but okay. kind of laid back. Um, right. But mm-hmm. you know, Austin City Limits. Uh, it was just a it was a cool yeah. performance, really good. I will mention two more. I listened to somebody named Damon Valley did an acoustic version that is not very good. Oh my um, god! Yeah, it's on the wall of shame. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> um, and then I listened to the Pearl Jam version where Eddie sings with the singer from Slater Kenny, and they did kind of the same thing you're talking about in the the Bennington one, where he starts off and does Cornell, and then she does his part, but she cannot sing that low, and the, like the verse that she does is not very good. But then they switch back at the end, and she does Cornell's wailing, and it sounds much, much better. And you know, he still does his, oh, I don't mind, you know. <laughs> so, nice. so it goes from like, ooh, uh, and then to like a much better cover. But there's a ton of Pearl Jam versions on like Spotify if you want to check those out. But uh, the last thing we'll check out tonight is how the shoes fit. So, Tal, this is your song. How do the shoes fit for Hunger Strike by Temple of the Dog? Yeah, this is like a, like a rugged sandal for me, you know. Mm. It's like very like durable. Hike into the lighthouse. Um, a little like, you know, again of the era, of very much of the era of the '90s. Um, so are we going Birkenstock? Yeah, probably probably a Birkenstock <laughs> or like a, a, a Tiva. Is that Tiva. how you pronounce it? If you remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tiva, uh, Tiva, yeah, yeah. A, a worn in though mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Oh yeah, very worn in. Absolutely, Seems not new, not not fresh out the box. That's for sure. Very very nice, Neil. What about you? Um, yeah, it fits. Um, and you know what I think of with a lot of these bands of this era, and specifically this one is like a dark green uh, Converse One Star. Remember those from the 90s? Like, just mm. like the low tops with mm-hmm. the one star. Yeah, it's very, very... A low top, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go a completely different direction here. It fits, but it fits... <laughs> it fits like that old story, the old woman who lived in a shoe, because in that story, they're hungry, but they're resourceful, <laughs> and there's hope. And there's also a, 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 a childlike, their youthful optimism and rebellion, which, remind, you know, I think this works with this song. And it's a memorable and classic story. So just like this well, song. Circling back, Josh, do you know what the one stars are? Because <laughs> um, it sounded like so. when you said, oh, low tops. I think they only came in low tops. I'm not talking about Chuck All Stars. Then maybe I don't. <laughs> cool. I'll get you a pair. <laughs> Then, may, then maybe I, that was one of those moments where it's I said, It's uh-huh. basically just a shoe with a star on the side. Like it was, uh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Don't, didn't they have those in high top as well? Maybe. But Chuck Taylors have stars on the side. Right? 
Well, they have on the on the ankle, but I'm talking about where the swoosh right. is. I'll send you guys. Oh, a picture. where the swoosh is? Uh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know what you're talking about now. And, and thanks for clarifying, yeah, yeah. Neil. Thanks for calling me out. I just wanted to. I always I wanted to clarify because, like, oh, I'm trying, I'm a pair of green chucks. <laughs> Uh, well, well, Tal. On that note, uh, thank you for for being the guest. The last three episodes been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, hopefully, uh, if if we keep doing this for a while, we'll have you back some point. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And in saying that, uh, our cover of Temple of the Dogs, Hunger Strike. I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of decadence But I can't feed on the powerless when my cup's already But it's on the table the fire's cooking And the farming babies while the slaves are all working Blood is on the table and the mouths are all choking I'm going hungry I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of decadence. But I can't feed on the powerless when my cup's already overfilled. But it's on the table the fire's cooking And the farming babies while the slaves are all working And it's on the table the mouths are all choking But I'm going hungry cover you just heard was performed by josh bond thank you for listening to pod gave rock and roll to you if you like what you heard you can 
find us on Twitter or Instagram under the handle at PodGaveRock. Next week, we are going to do something a little different. We are going to be discussing our new album from our band, For the Kings. The album is called Turn It Off. Again, that is For the Kings. The album is called Turn It Off. We released it a couple months ago, and we're going to dive into the specifics of making a record independently in this day and age. Can't wait! Ha, 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 ha.